Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. I'm your host, my name is Daniel, Daniel Downey. I'm a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh and I do a thing in the city, it's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is, that is what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this episode you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, Today's podcast is all about Mary Queen of Scots' return from France, her marriage to Lord Henry Darnley, it's full of drama and it's full of backstabbing, quite literally, because it also involves two murders that occurred in Edinburgh in the 1560s. The first occurred at Holyrood Palace in March 1566, and it was uh, the murder of David Rizzio. Now, David Rizzio was Mary's Italian secretary. He was an eccentric Italian guy, an excellent lute player, a world-class singer, and he was murdered because the Scottish Protestant lords were convinced that he was an undercover agent sent by the Pope. You know, because because that's who the Pope would send if he was sending an undercover agent to Scotland. He'd send an eccentric Italian guy. Do you know what I mean? No one's ever going to suspect him. Do you know what I mean? No one's ever going to suspect the opera singer choking folk to death with his rosary beads, you know? I'd like to think the Pope would be a wee bit more subtle than that. Like, that would be the equivalent of if Scotland had a double agent, we sent out fat bastard or something like that, you know? And the man who was responsible for Rizzio's murder, or at least the man who had organised the plot against him, was the man who was murdered the following year in February 1567, Lord Henry Darnley. Now, Darnley, he was Mary's second husband, and he was a vindictive, alcoholic, womanising pig fucker. Basically, he had all of the necessary attributes to become Prime Minister of Great Britain, but it also meant that he had a lot of enemies. And he was murdered in the Scottish gunpowder plot of February 1567. Scottish history's biggest whodunit. And for any English people listening to this, right, okay, when we do a gunpowder plot here in Scotland, we make sure that the guy fucking dies, all right? Your gunpowder plot might be more famous, more well-known around the world, but at least our guy died, all right? That's the number one thing you've got to achieve in your gunpowder plot. Now listen, folks, if this is the first time that you have listened to the podcast. This is the sort of thing that you should expect, all right? I'm not going to lie to you. This is a podcast that's full of history, Tory bashing and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you'll enjoy it. If this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to the star? All of the episodes, they go in chronological order. They all give a wee bit of background into the one that follows it. They're all named as well, so if you want to jump in at William Wallace or Robert the Bruce, you can do that. Uh, basically, go through the back catalogue. That's what I'm saying if, this is your, if you're a first-time listener. Right, anyway, so without further ado, folks, here is your podcast. It's all about Mary's return from France, her marriage to Darnley, and the murders of Rizzio and her second husband, Lord Henry Darnley. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there, and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! William Maitland was one of Scotland's most astute and intelligent royal officials, and he became Mary's top advisor on her return to Scotland in 1561. He had been private secretary to Marie de Guise and served as secretary of state. Maitland was known as Mitchell Wiley in Scotland, a play on the Italian Niccolo Machiavelli. Not really getting the play on Machiavelli there, to be honest with you folks. Like, surely a Scottish Machiavelli would be Mac Machiavelli. 
Now, now, Niccolo Machiavelli, for anyone who doesn't know, was an Italian diplomat during the Renaissance period, and he is considered to be the father of modern political philosophy, but his name invokes deceit and deviousness, since he believed that morals and politics shouldn't inform each other. Violence and death are acceptable if the result is politically or economically beneficial. He'd have been all over herd immunity, let's just put it that way. Abandoning morals and politics is, of course, an alien concept to our modern-day government of racists, misogynists, adulterers and pig fuckers. In November 1559, with Marie de Guise's grip on power slipping, Maitland switched allegiance to the Protestant lords who ushered in the Reformation in 1560. When the shit hit the fan, he turned Protestant. A course of action even Celtic fans are considering at the moment. And this is something that Maitland did quite a lot through his career. He would switch sides depending on where he thought the power lay. And despite the political divisions brought about by the Reformation, Maitland was able to convince the new regime that they should invite Mary back to Scotland and they should offer their allegiance despite her Catholicism. Now, being Catholic would cause issue for Mary when she returned to Scotland in 1561, but she was young. She was only 18 years old. And the Scottish people were excited to see their young, vibrant queen return. Her expected return was met with hope and joy in Scotland. It was more enthusiasm than Mary most likely felt herself at the prospect of leaving the French climate and the glamour of its courts. France was warm, cultured, extravagant, and Scotland, well, was windy, wet and full of angry Protestants. If you too would like to experience how Mary fell in 1561, you can do so by visiting Stornoway in 2021. In April 1561, two Scottish delegations met with Mary in France. The first was led by the volatile and unpredictable George Gordon, the Catholic Earl of Huntley, who promised Mary an army of 20,000 that could retake the country and reinstate Catholicism as the national religion should she decide to land in Aberdeen. He tried to sweeten the deal by offering Mary a job on the rigs as well. Come to Aberdeen and we'll take over the country. The Earl of Huntley was very much trying to model himself on Sir Alex Ferguson. The second delegation, that was headed up by Mary's half-brother James Stewart, the son of James V by his mistress, Lady Margaret Erskine. James Stewart urged Mary to return to Scotland in a spirit of compromise and reconciliation. He advised her not to interfere with matters of national religion and warned that if she did so, he could not guarantee her safety. Being unable to guarantee a relative's safety if they mention religion is advice normally reserved for dealing with an uncle at a Scottish wedding. Mary, probably sensibly, opted for the Protestant delegation. She gave her word she would not interfere with matters of national religion, but insisted that she should be allowed to hold mass in private at Holyrood House as a compromise. James Stewart gave Mary his personal guarantee that such an arrangement would be met and promised to station himself at the chapel doors to protect the Queen from those who might protest. Mary set sail from Calais on the 14th of August 1561. Her ship arrived in Leith on the 19th of August. It had been a swift crossing. When she arrived, there was no one there to welcome her as no one expected her to arrive so quickly. The Edinburgh Trams project had been started in Leith the previous century and was, stroke is, still ongoing. The people of Leith, they just weren't accustomed to someone arriving on time, let alone ahead of schedule. They didn't expect her to arrive at all. 
to be completely honest with you. A news spread quickly of the Queen's arrival, and soon the streets of Leith were packed with crowds cheering wildly, celebrating the Queen's return. Such scenes of celebration and jubilation wouldn't be seen again on the streets of Leith for another 450 years, as that's how long it took Hibs to win the cup. Mary was dressed in black as she was still in an official period of mourning for her late husband Francois and her mother Marie de Guise. She was accompanied by a small group of friends in attendance, including her beloved four Marys, and Mary was overjoyed by the welcome she received. Every night on the first week of her arrival, crowds would gather outside of the Queen's apartment at Holyrood to serenade her from beneath the windows, and if they were anything like my neighbours, to smoke copious amounts of weed as well. The jovial mood of celebration changed on the first Sunday of Mary's arrival. As part of her agreement with James Stewart, a private mass was held at Holyrood Palace and angry crowds led by the volatile Lord Lindsay the Byers gathered in the forecourt at Holyrood and tried to attack the priest and terrified attendants. James Stewart, true to his word, protected the chapel door and the mass was able to go ahead. But that evening it wasn't serenading from an adoring Edinburgh crowd outside of Mary's windows, but angry shouts from previously enthusiastic supporters recently returned from abroad and supporters now turning against her it was basically it was a bit like celtic's return from dubai i suppose the following day mary announced her first royal proclamation a pacification of differences of religion anyone under pain of death was forbidden from interfering with state religion, but it was also decreed that those who tried to interfere with their servants in the practice of mass would also be punished. It was a statesmanlike, consolatory move aimed at calming tensions, but it wasn't enough to placate John Knox, who boomed from the pulpit of St Giles Cathedral that one mass is more fearful than 10,000 armed enemies landing in any part of the realm. He was awfully scared of mass. I don't know if he thought down at Holyrood that they were doing the mass. The monster mass. Oh, thank you very much. Although to be fair to him, mass can be pretty dangerous, you know, if you're like an 11-year-old altar boy. Mary, she summoned Knox to Holyrood on the 4th of September 1561 where she accused him of trying to incite her subjects to rebel against her, which is exactly what he was trying to do. But somehow he got away with nothing more than a Twitter ban. Mary and Knox, they argued for hours with Knox eventually conceding be not in her a proud mind, a crafty wit and an injured mind against God which is what I used to have in my Tinder profile. The fact that Mary was an opponent of great wit, charm and spirit made her even more dangerous in Knox's eye. He hated the Queen. So, I mean, he couldn't have been that staunch, could he? But above all, he just hated women. Knox, he would have lambasted Susan Boyle for having a better beard than him. But his extreme views towards Mary, they weren't held by most of the reformers. Most supported Mary's policies of religious toleration. In 1564, Knox was actually censored by the General Assembly for his hostility towards the Queen. The General Assembly of the Kirk of Scotland is like the Supreme Court. Uh, it consisted of like commissioners, ministers, deacons, church elders elected to make decisions and pass laws relating to the church. They still meet to this day. Despite the hostility of Knox and some of the other reformers, Mary made an excellent start to her personal rule. She travelled to Fife, Aberdeen, Inverness, Argyll, Ayrshire and the borders, overcoming the difficulties of the terrain and the average speed cameras on the A9 with 
tireless gaiety. Everywhere she went, people were enchanted by her vivacious charm. Merchants, farm workers, highland lairds all succumbed to her charms. She was enthusiastically received in every community she arrived in, like a fish fan. Mary was being well advised by William Maitland and James Stewart, whom she made Earl of Murray in 1562. But still, she didn't ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh and the reformist acts contained within it, which technically made them illegal, but she made no attempt to revoke the treaty that had ushered in the Reformation in 1560. She refused to ratify the treaty because Elizabeth still hadn't confirmed her, Mary Queen of Scots, as the heir presumptive to the throne of England. And so Mary, she was sure not to show favouritism towards her Catholic subjects. She endorsed a decision by a privy council to divert funds from the notoriously corrupt Catholic Church to the bastion of honesty that is the crown and the kirk. And Mary, she was able to force cruel, angry opponents such as Lord Lindsay of the Byers or Lord Ruthven to U-turn and to support her cause. She was very much the, the Marcus Rashford of the 16th century, able to make arseholes U-turn at the click of a finger. In the summer of 1562, Mary endorsed a campaign that was headed up by James Stewart, the new Earl of Murray, against the most powerful Catholic family in Scotland, the Gordons of Huntley. Mary, she was attempting to take down these powerful Catholics in the north of the country by illegally funneling money to Protestant paramilitaries in that part of the world. Actually, do you know what? Um, I think I think I might be getting my, my female leaders in, in, in Britain mixed up there, but... Um, Anyway, Mary, she travelled with Murray to suppress George Gordon, the Earl of Huntley, the one-time Chancellor of Scotland and the man who had defeated the English at the Battle of Haddon Rig 20 years earlier. Huntley, he was unhappy with James Stewart being given the Earldom of Murray lands which he thought belonged to the Gordons. When the Keeper of Inverness Castle, a captain of Clan Gordon, controversially refused to allow the Queen entry into the castle, it was taken by Murray's army on the 17th of October 1562. They then marched on Aberdeen, encircling Gordon's encampment and defeating Huntley at the Battle of Corrigy on the 28th of October 1562. Gordon's eldest son, Sir John Gordon, was captured and taken to Aberdeen where Mary was witness to his bungled beheading, a traumatic execution that reduced her to tears. George Gordon had also been captured but he died while, he died while in captivity. His embalmed body was taken to Edinburgh for trial in May 1563 where he was sentenced to continued to be dead, presumably. The Gordon earldoms were then forfeited, although Mary did restore these to the Huntley, or sorry, she restored the Huntley earldom to the Gordons in 1565. Mary kept a glittering Renaissance court in the style of her father, grandfather and French in-laws. Her court was crowded with scholars, poets, artists and musicians. There was riding and hunting, dancing, billiards, card playing, jelly and custard, pin the tail on the donkey. It was all really good crack and very much against John Knox's no fun allowed rule. But it wasn't all frivolity. Mary kept a personal library of over 300 books and read in Latin with the scholar George Buchanan who would write plays for the entertainment of the courtiers. George Buchanan, he was one of the leading scholars of the 16th century and was hailed as the greatest Latin poet of his time. Buchanan spent much of his life lecturing on the continent, but he returned to Scotland in 1561 and was welcomed into Mary's court. He fell out with Mary after the death of her second husband, Lord Henry Darnley, and would become one of her most bitter and bigoted enemies. Mary would go on hunts. She enjoyed embroidery with her four Marys. She played the lute, 
John Knox obviously preferred the flute. Uh, she was a keen golfer and avid card player, and the glamour of Mary's court, by which many of her friends and nobles, but only intensified John Knox's disapproval. Mary had to endure tirades about women, Catholics, and vaccines from John Knox at Holyrood, one of which famously reduced her to tears. But as wearisome as these encounters must have been, they were marginal distractions to her court activities and the political thrust of her reign. Knox was just a, a middle-aged man who liked to make young women cry. He was like Simon Cowell, I suppose. And Mary and Knox's debates, they started the age-old tradition of Protestants and Catholics shouting at each other, except now they mainly do it on the Clyde scoreboard phone and... Their clashes are symbolic of the Scottish Reformation as a clash of ideologies and culture, but in 1561 to 1563, it wasn't obvious that Knox's ideology would win over. In France, the, the royal family, the French royal family, were able to ride the weave, the weave of Protestantism from the Huguenots. And early in Mary's personal rule, there was every chance that she could pull off the same feat in Scotland. Right from the beginning of her reign, Mary was eagerly trying to arrange a meeting with Elizabeth I. William Maitland was sent to London to converse with Elizabeth's most trusted advisor, William Cecil, to try and arrange a meeting between the two monarchs. Mary's letters to Elizabeth demonstrate she was an excellent diplomat in her customary charming manner. Mary complimented her sister queen and would send verses and poems. A meeting between the two would be highly advantageous, advantageous for Mary. If Mary could meet Elizabeth in person, she had every faith that she'd be able to make an impression to charm her sister queen and ensure she was named as the unmarried and childless English queen's heir. Be nice to the English leader so you could be queen of it all, basically. You know, And failing that, they'll give you a seat in the House of Lords and there's always the option of bake-off or strictly come dancing or something like that, you can... From Elizabeth's point of view, a meeting was also advantageous. She would insist that any concessions that were made to Mary were only met if she finally agreed to ratify the 1560 Treaty of Edinburgh. The reformers were concerned about any potential meetings between Mary and Elizabeth. They feared it might lead Elizabeth to supporting Mary and Scottish Protestants receiving less support from England. The Scottish Catholic Party were also concerned. They had been left disappointed at Mary's refusal to commit to the restoration of Catholicism in Scotland, and if she met with Elizabeth, she might be convinced to convert to Protestantism. Both the Protestants and Catholics thought that they were being victimised. Classic old firm behaviour, really. There were concerns in England as well. Many English parliamentarians did not want the English monarch to meet with a foreign Catholic monarch, but both Mary and Elizabeth were keen to meet. When Maitland returned from London, Mary excitedly asked if the portrait he had been sent with was a close likeness. A meeting was arranged for August 1562 in Nottingham, but the plans fell through when Mary's uncle, Francis the Duke of Guise, massacred Protestant worships in Versailles in France on the 1st of March 1562. The Versailles massacre would lead to the French wars of religion between French Catholics and French Pro Protestants, known, known as the Huguenots. England as a Protestant country was expected to support the Huguenots and Spain would be expected to support French Catholics and since Francis de Guise was Mary's uncle, a meeting between Mary and Elizabeth would be construed as Elizabeth meeting with the enemy. It seems a little unfair, doesn't it? Like if everyone was judged by the behaviour of their uncle, then William and Harry wouldn't be allowed to meet anyone. 
The meeting was rearranged for the following summer, but fate would keep Mary and Elizabeth apart, and a meeting between a meeting between the two queens never took place. They would continue to socially distance for the rest of their lives. Well, for the rest of Mary's life, at least. The issue of who Mary should marry had led to the violence of the rough wooings in Mary's upbringing in France, but now, as a young widow returned to her kingdom, her hand in marriage was once again the most sought after in Europe. Europe in the middle of the 16th century was locked in religious war. If European leaders were able to secure Mary's hand in marriage, it meant Scotland's allegiance, or at the very least, neutrality. Elizabeth had yet to recognise Mary's claim to succeed her to the English throne, and she would only do so if Mary married a suitor who met her approval. Elizabeth offered one of her court favourites, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Now, Dudley wasn't exactly the ideal choice. He and Elizabeth were rumoured to be having a relationship, and he was alleged to have murdered his own wife so that he could marry Elizabeth. Lady Dudley was found dead at the bottom of of the stairs at her manor house in Oxford. But who killed her? Did she fall? Was she pushed? Was it Dudley? Was it the Queen? I mean, the Queen of England couldn't possibly be involved in the killing of a royal in-law, could she? Do you know what I mean? Were the stairs of an Oxford manor house the Paris tunnel of its day? Who knows, you know? But in the end, Mary, she didn't marry for any political or diplomatic reason. She married for love. Mary fell deeply in love with Lord Henry Darnley, a tall, handsome, charming young man four years younger than her. Darnley was the eldest son of Matthew Stewart, Earl of Lennox, and Margaret Douglas. Now, Margaret Douglas was the daughter of Margaret Tudor's marriage to Archibald Douglas, Earl of Angus, after the death of King James IV. Margaret Tudor was therefore both Mary and Darnley's grandmother, meaning they were cousins and great-grandchildren of Henry VII. They were in love and related. It was like a Channel 5 documentary. I'm not sure what the Catholic Church's stance on shagging your cousin is. I think you're allowed as long as you don't wear a condom. I don't know. Now, Darnley, he had a close claim to the English throne, and since he was male, English, and Protestant, he was preferred by many in England as heir presumptive to the English throne. But Darnley was still something of a rank outsider in the marriage stakes. His father, the Earl of Lennox, had sided with England during the rough wooings and was one of the most hated figures in Scotland. He was pardoned by Mary in September 1564 and allowed to return to Scotland. Darnley's brother, Sir John Stuart, had rose to prominence in the French court. When Darnley travelled to France to see his brother, it was there where he first met Mary. They were reacquainted in Scotland in February 1565 and Mary was suitably impressed, making Darnley a part of her entourage. In early April 1565, Darnley fell ill with an attack of the measles at Stirling Castle and Mary became his devoted nurse, spending all day and night by his bedside and pretty soon she had fallen hopelessly in love. She was turned on when people were weak, vulnerable, from broken homes and human trafficked. Actually, uh, I think I think I might be getting her mixed up with another royal, now I think about it. The politically prudent worldwise Mary now threw caution to the wind. In May 1565, she made Darnley Earl of Ross. On the 22nd of June 1565, he was made Duke of Albany. And then, on Saturday the 28th of June 1565, at the Mercat Cross in Edinburgh, it was announced Mary and Prince Henry would be wed, and he would be made King of this our kingdom. Lord Earl... Duke and then King. Darnley's rise to prominence was more spectacular than Ryland going from X Factor editions to the one show. Parliament hadn't been notified of the wedding, and Mary didn't wait for papal dispensation. You need you need a thumbs up from the Pope before you can marry your cousin. That's what the white smoke's for. The crowd outside the Vatican is just thousands of cousins desperate to shag each other, you know? 
On the 19th of July, 1565, the couple were married in a private Catholic ceremony at Holyrood. The marriage was completely against the advice of Maitland, Murray and the rest of Mary's advisors who disapproved of Darnley and of the Lennoxes especially. Despite the doubters, the marriage did not detract from Mary's popularity amongst her subjects and by marrying within the Scottish nobility, it created an independent kingdom free from foreign influence. The work of Mary's advisors may have been into, that they had put into securing the English succession now looks scuppered and many of Scotland's already volatile nobility, they were angered by the marriage. But the biggest issue of all with marrying Lord Henry Darnley was how quickly he would show his true colours. Murray had refused to attend the wedding and he withdrew from the royal court shortly after. And with the support of the Earl of Arran, he mustered forces in aid and attempted to launch a rebellion against his half-sister. Mary raised an army in response and just over a month after her wedding to Darnley, she rode at the head of an army to put down this rebellion. One hell of a honeymoon that, isn't it? It's mad to think of the Queen riding at the head of an army. Like, I, I, can't, I, I can't imagine our current Queen would ever have been any use at that. Like, Prince Philip, on the other hand, you know what I mean? If he was at the front of the army in the Range Rover, he could certainly take a few bodies. For weeks... Mary's army chased down Murray without the two sides ever engaging each other. It's like when the, those Falkirk and Hibbs casuals were dancing around each other at the railway station. By October, Murray realised his cause was hopeless and he escaped to England. The chasing down of Murray's rebels by Mary became known as the chase about raids and it marked the high point of her rule. Mary had ridden confidently at the front of her army. She had banished Murray to England and she was enjoying the height of, the pop, of her popularity amongst her subjects. Darnley was arrogant, shallow, vain, weak, selfish, an alcoholic, a gambler and a womanizer. And of course, you wouldn't want someone who was arrogant, vindictive, dishonest, disloyal, erratic, a womanizer in charge of the country. I mean, not unless they promised to deliver Brexit, of course. Immediately after the wedding, Darnley's behaviour became more and more erratic. He would roam the streets of Edinburgh with his low-life companions, grabbing women by the pussy and ending up in the hive till five. He stopped attending meetings of the Privy Council, who required both Mary and Darnley's signature to pass decisions. Darnley's attendance at the Privy Council became so sporadic that Mary had an iron stamp of his signature made up so she could sign official documents. Darnley, he developed his own circle of sympathisers, unscrupulous, vicious men such as Lord Patrick Ruthven, Earl of Ruthven, the particularly brutal Lord Lindsay of the Byers and the Earl of Morton. It became abundantly clear to Mary that Darnley was not a worthy king, so she withdrew the crown matrimonial from him. This sent Darnley into a furious rage and he began to plot against his wife, plotting that would culminate in the brutal murder of Mary's secretary, David Rizzio, at Holyrood Palace on the 9th of March, 1566. David Rizzio had a quick wit, clever intellect and was an accomplished musician with a renowned singing voice. The disaffected lords who had lost influence after the chase about raids focused their discontent on Rizzio whom they claimed was an agent of the Pope who had usurped their rightful place in the immediate council of the Queen. The lords wanted Mary's secretary dead, like Lord Sugar when his secretary forgets to use his correct title. Initially, Darnley had been close friends with Rizzio, but he was gullible and he was easy for the lords to manipulate. He was a gullible idiot born into high society without the skills or personality to effectively rule the country. He would do anything, including a disastrous hard Brexit, if it meant that he could be leader. 
They convinced Darren Lee Rizzio was having an affair with his wife, which is highly implausible, not just because there's absolutely no evidence, but because Rizzio was well known to be famously unattractive and Mary, of course, famously beautiful. Darren Lee, though, he was ready to agree to anything that would see his inverted commas honour restored. On the 12th of March 1566, the Scottish Parliament were due to pass a bill that would see the lords of the chase about raids have their land forfeited and tried for treason. Darnley entered into a written bond with the lords, who included William Maitland in their ranks, promising to pardon them and allow their return to Scotland. He also offered them lucrative PPE and track and trace contracts. In exchange, the reinstated lords would offer Darnley the crown matrimonial, meaning he would be king in his own right if Mary died. But what's most remarkable about the plot to kill Rizzio is so many people seem to have had foreknowledge of the plot before it happened. By mid-February, weeks before the murder, the English ambassador in Scotland, Thomas Randolph, informed Elizabeth of a plot that was brewing to murder Rizzio and to seize the crown. Everyone knew a disaster was unfolding, but were powerless to stop it. It was like the final series of Game of Thrones. On the evening of the 9th of March 1566, Mary was having a private supper in a small room off of the Queen's bedchamber at Holyrood Palace with a handful of intimates, including David Rizzio when Darnley suddenly appeared through a private staircase that led to the Queen's bedchamber. At the same time, the Earl of Ruthven, dressed in armour, appeared at the door and said to the Queen, May it please your majesty that yonder man David come forth of your privy chamber where he hath been over long. The 16th century, excessively brutal, but always polite. The palace had been occupied by a force of 150 of the Lord of the Byers men, and the approaches to the palace were secured by James Douglas, the Earl of Morton. As more conspirators entered the Queen's bedchamber, a terrified Rizzio clung to the Queen and begged for mercy, like Prince Andrew when Emily Matlas comes asking for another interview. He was dragged through the Queen's bedchamber to the top of the main staircase, where he was then stabbed more than 50 times. The Protestant conspirators were going for 55. Darnley's dagger was deliberately used by one of the conspirators and was left protruding from Rizzio's body. They were showing off, like an American police officer killing someone on camera. Mary, who was six months pregnant, had a pistol pointed at her belly and told by Lindsay she would be cut to collops if she tried to address the crowd that had now gathered outside the palace. Darnley addressed the crowd and attempted to calm them, and the following day he discharged the Parliament. Then Murray and the other nobles who were due to be forfeited by the Parliament just days later rode triumphantly into Edinburgh. Almost immediately Darnley had a change of heart. Convinced the conspirators were going to turn on him, he went full Clinton and begged his wife for forgiveness. Mary saw an opportunity to make her escape. She requested a meeting with the conspirators, which was granted on Monday the 11th of March. And during the meeting, the lords, they were pressing Mary for official pardons when she suddenly feigned a pregnancy pain and asked to retire to her bedchamber. Mary knew if the lords thought the child was coming, they wouldn't try and move her. They had committed treason, murder and imprisoned the queen, but even they knew not to fuck about with a pregnant woman. After midnight, Mary and Darnley escaped through a private staircase that led to the servant quarters at the back of the palace where Arthur Erskine, Mary's equerry and brother-in-law to one of the four Marys, was waiting with horses. It seems a tad strange that no one thought Mary might try and use the secret staircase to escape. You know what I mean? Like, I mind and uh, mind and keep an eye on that secret staircase. <laughs> Listen to this guy. Hey, don't be ridiculous. As if they're going to use that secret staircase to escape. Come on now. 
Mary and Darnley, they galloped through the night to Dunbar Castle, an exhausting ride for the pregnant queen who, despite the traumatic ordeal and her pregnancy, calmly cooked breakfast for them when they arrived at Dunbar the following morning. Now, another major player in the drama of Mary's reign made a telling entrance on the scene, James Hepburn, Lord Bothwell. Bothwell was a brave soldier, a borderer and the roughest of rough diamonds. He was a notorious adventurer who had scandalous liaisons across the courts of Europe. He was fiercely Protestant, but as Lord Admiral of Scotland, he had loyally supported the Queen Regent Marie de Guise. He had a running feud with the Hamiltons and the Earl of Arran, who accused Bothwell of trying to kidnap the Queen. Bothwell was imprisoned in 1562, but was pardoned and appointed Lieutenant General, Commander-in-Chief of Scotland's Armed Forces, by the time of Mary's marriage to Darnley in 1565. Bothwell married Lady Jean Gordon, sister of the Earl of Huntley, in February 1566, but rushed to Mary's aid just a month later as soon as he heard of her escape to Dunbar after the Rizzio murder. With a force of 4,000 men, Bothwell retook Edinburgh easily. Mary rode triumphantly back into Edinburgh on the 18th of March 1566 and the conspirators fled. It was like the first day after the Edinburgh festival. Everyone breathed a huge sigh of relief after the wankers who had held the city for a few weeks finally left. Now Mary, she'd been unaware of the extent of Murray's involvement in the plot since he was not in Edinburgh at the time of Rizzio's murder and had not signed Darnley's bond, so she had little option but to exonerate him, but the rest of the rebels were exiled. For Darnley, Mary felt nothing but contempt and mistrust, and for her saviour Bothwell, Mary made him her main advisor. He was given the Dominic Cummings role. Not that I can ever imagine... Dominic Cummings ever saving Boris Johnson's life. He's more into endangering lives, you know, through herd immunity or driving while blind. Mary gave birth to a baby boy, James, the future James VI of Scotland and James I of England, at Edinburgh Castle on the 19th of June 1566. James was born at Edinburgh Castle and not Holyrood because the murder of Rizzio had occurred just months earlier and the palace was deemed not secure enough. Now, the birth of an heir was an occasion to be celebrated. Mary planned an elaborate baptism at Stirling Castle that would be a demonstration of the greatness of the Stuart monarchy, a day for national reconciliation between Protestants and Catholics where the whole country could come together to celebrate. Darnley, however, he wasn't in the mood to celebrate. He was back to his old petulant ways and refused to attend the baptism, instead sulking in his bedchamber at Stirling Castle, which is some impressive sulking. Do you know what I mean? Staying in your room while the biggest party in the kingdom is happening outside your window. That'll be like bitter old firm fans this summer who refuse to support Scotland at the Euros. Do you know what I mean? I'm not watching that shite. Ireland didn't qualify. Not that it made a blind bit of difference to the celebrations. The baptism was a spectacular affair, the likes of which had never been seen before in Scotland. There was three days of feasts and celebrations. The the courses were served by fairies and Greek gods. There was a renaissance pageant on the castle esplanade where an enchanted castle was under siege. The whole thing was a real festival of Brexit. Although whether there's fairies at that will depend on how much cocaine the Tory frontbenchers have had. The occasion was closed with a spectacular fireworks display and James was christened on the 17th of December 1566 in a Catholic ceremony at the Chapel Royal at Stirling Castle. In November 1566, Mary met with Maitland and several prominent Scottish nobles at Craigmiller Castle just outside of Edinburgh where they discussed the possibility of a divorce from Darnley. Now as long as the legitimacy of her newborn son was not affected, 
Mary was open to a divorce. Mary needed to get darnly papped off without jeopardising her heirs' legitimacy. It's the classic staying together for the kids. And when the nobles suggested that Darnley could be removed by other means, Mary flatly refused to entertain them. Regardless, on the 20th of November 1566, the Lords signed a bond at Craigmiller Castle committing themselves to having Darnley murdered, signing a contract that would ensure death, like signing a track and trace contract with Serco. Now, the extent Mary was aware of such a plot is debated. It's likely she knew of the intention to remove Darnley, but was unaware of any plot to kill him. There were also rumours of a plot by the Lennoxes to remove Mary from the throne and replace her with her infant prince, with Darnley acting as regent, forcibly replacing the queen and replacing her with her heir. It's now the stage that Charles is at, you know? Now, there's no surviving copy of the Craig Miller Bond, but it's thought that the main players of Scottish politics, Maitland, Bothwell, Murray, Argyll and later Morton, were all involved in Darnley's murder. Early in 1567, Darnley was in Glasgow, seriously ill with what was thought to be smallpox, but we now know was syphilis. Boris Johnson has tried this trick with, inverted commas, COVID. Wink, wink. Yeah, we all know you really had the clap, Boris, you know. So Mary went to visit Darnley in Glasgow, and on the 1st of February, she had him brought back to Edinburgh. Not wanting to compromise the health of her infant child, Mary kept Darnley and Prince Andrew well away. She had Darnley kept in the Provost House, attached to the Church of St Mary in the Field, known now as Kirkafield. The house lay just inside the city walls, and Mary spent much time attending to Darnley at Kirkafield, much like she had done when Darnley was ill at Stirling Castle in 1565. A, recon- a reconciliation seemed possible as Mary again nursed her husband to health. She just had a thing for arseholes when they got sick. She'd have been all over Trump when he got COVID. On Sunday 9th of February 1567, Mary attended a wedding breakfast at Holyrood to celebrate the marriage of one of her ladies-in-waiting to one of her French staff. In the afternoon, she attended a formal reception to welcome a visiting ambassador before then going to Kirkafield to care for Darnley. During her visit, Mary was reminded she had promised to attend the wedding ball, so her and her entourage, including Bothwell, left to attend the ball. Darnley was due to be moved to Holyrood the following day. Throughout the day, someone or some persons had been packing the cellar of Kirkafield with gunpowder. At two o'clock in the morning, an almighty blast was heard across the city, which confused the residents of Edinburgh into thinking it was actually one o'clock in the afternoon. Kirkafield was blown to smithereens. Edinburgh Council were devastated. They didn't even get the chance to destroy the building by turning it into a hotel or student accommodation. Darnley, he was found dead, unharmed by the blast but strangled in the garden under a pear tree. Presumably, Darnley heard a commotion, became wise to the plot, tried to escape, and was caught by his pursuer or pursuers, who strangled him to death, strangling escapees, just like Pretty Patel's immigration policy. The murder of Lord Henry Darnley is Scottish history's whodunit. Mary was expected to spend the evening at Kirkafield. Was she the intended target? Had the plot been arranged by Darnley and then hijacked by others? Or had the plotters attempted to blow up the entirety of Mary's royal court, not just Darnley? One thing was certain. There was more than enough suspects with motive to want Darnley dead. So 
that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. What we try to do here on the Montebank History of Scotland podcast is we try and match what we've been talking about in the podcast with a malt whiskey from Scotland. And what I try to do is I try to raise enough money so that I can send someone deserving a bottle of that whiskey. Now, you can nominate people to receive bottles of whiskey it can be someone who's um you, you know like a key worker an nhs staff worker it could be just someone who deserves uh recognition for being a thoroughly good person it honestly doesn't matter what i need you to do is you you go onto my buy me a coffee account that's buymeacoffee.com uh i am on there at montebank history of scotland and just basically leave me the equivalent of the price of a cup of coffee a pint of beer And what I do is I take that money and it goes towards buying someone a bottle of that whiskey. You can nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey by leaving a comment, by sending me a DM. Uh, You can do that through my social media as well. You can follow me at Montebank Scotland. Uh, Send me a wee DM, leave a comment. And I basically just choose someone at random. If you've listened to a few episodes of the podcast now and you would like to become a patron of the podcast, you can go to my Patreon account. Again, I'm on there at Montebank History of Scotland. And you can basically just give me the equivalent of a, the price of a cup of coffee or a pint of beer every month. It's really massively, massively appreciated. And it goes a long, long way because it's the only way that I can raise money to send people deserving a bottle of whiskey so please consider doing that uh today's whiskey i am going to match the podcast with the the glenn murray and that's uh obviously fits with the earl of murray um mary's half-brother james stewart the earl of murray the man who attempted to rise against mary in the chase about raids he was also involved in the murders of rizzio and darnley but i also chose the glen murray because as a space malt you expect it to be really light and golden and just easy going when in fact it's quite kind of heavy bodied it's got a slight peeiness to it and it it packs a punch you know what you what you see is not what you get which is exactly what henry darnley was like so if you'd like to nominate someone to receive that bottle then you know what to do. Leave me a comment, send me a DM, send me an email. Uh, Please like, rate and share the podcast. That's all so, so important um, for gaining listeners and all that kind of stuff. Um, So if you do get a chance, please leave me a a wee review, rate the podcast as well, tell a friend, share it. Uh, And please give me a follow on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Montebank Scotland and I'm on Facebook at Montebank Tours. Um, give me a wee follow and I think that's about it I don't have anything else that I need to ask you to do I do hope you enjoyed the podcast you're enjoying the series and uh, I will see you all next time cheerio now bye bye